here is the fusion of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Do the Twitter files being released by Elon Musk show a coordinated attack on the First Amendment? Insight from the always brilliant, cogent professor, Alan Dershowitz, in 60 seconds. It is the Glenn Beck program. Jeff Katz, happy to be sitting in for my friend Glenn. I was shadow banned, I think is the term. I had 25, 30,000 followers on Twitter, and then one morning I woke up and everybody was gone. People sent me notes saying, hey, how come you cut me off of Twitter? And I thought, I, I don't even know how to do that. There's nobody to appeal to, but now I'm back up. I think around 7,000 people are coming back in, and I always appreciate the follow over there on Twitter. Now, as I try and rebuild this, with Elon Musk now owning Twitter, we are seeing more, hearing more, reading more about what was going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of involvement, it seems to me, from the federal government. Isn't that then all about the First Amendment? Well, what do I know? Professor Alan Dershowitz, however knows about this and, well, pretty much everything else, and I'm always so happy to chat with him. Professor, thank you for being here. Well, thank you, and a Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year, and Happy Hanukkah to everybody. May it be a joyous season and a, a better new year for everyone. Oh, here's to a better new year, absolutely. I, uh, as you know, have had a love-hate uh, relationship with you for years. I grew up uh, hating you because you were defending the Nazis in Skokie, and I was a 12-year-old riding a school bus to protest against that. And some, what, 40 years later now, I'm sitting here going, man, I love this Dershowitz guy. Hey, I would have been on your bus protesting <laughs> the Nazis in Skokie. Yeah. I, I had nothing to say other than protest them. I was just against the government. Mm-hmm. trying to in, interfere with their free speech uh, because I think it would be much better to defeat them in the marketplace of ideas under the First Amendment. But I would have been on your bus protesting them. I would always protest Nazis and, uh, and bigotry of any kind. At the same time, I defend it. Uh, that's what I did when I defended President Trump. I voted against him, right. and I defended him on the floor of the Senate. That's what I've been doing for 60 years of my life. Well, we, we, we appreciate uh, your, your consistency and your honesty. Believe me when I tell you that. It's, uh, uh, it, it's a record that deserves respect. So tell me what's going on with Twitter. A private company can tell me yes or no. I can be on their platform. But if the FBI and other federal agencies are involved, isn't this now a First Amendment issue? It is, and it's one of the most important and pressing First Amendment issues of the 21st century, and that is the relationship between government actors and private social media. Social media has enormous, enormous power today, so much power that there are arguments that have been made. I don't support them, but arguments that have been made that they become common carriers and maybe aren't completely free of any constraints by government. But putting that aside, whatever way you come out on that one, having the government's thumb, in this case, elbow on the scale, and essentially telling Twitter, Facebook, uh, and others what they should and shouldn't censor really is a double violation of the First Amendment. First of all, it gets the government into the business indirectly of censorship. And second, it does it without transparency. 
If they did it openly, at least we could protest. But if they do it behind the scenes and we need uh, Elon Musk buying the company to disclose it, that's a double violation of the spirit and perhaps even the letter of the First Amendment. These are issues that will come before the Supreme Court in the next decade. The next decade. Gosh, we have to. Why why are we not standing up today and saying, hey, address this? Well, I I think it should be addressed. It should be addressed by Congress. They can do it more quickly. Mm -hmm. It should be addressed in the lower courts. But by the time it gets to the Supreme Court and uh, is formulated as a constitutional issue, it may take as long as a decade. What I'm suggesting is this decade is going to be a decade in which the First Amendment issues uh, revolving around social media and its relation to the government will come to the forefront. Um, It will be one of the most important First Amendment issues. You know, when I said that, some of my colleagues laughed at me. This is five, six years ago. Lawrence Tribe said, how can I think this is a First Amendment issue? This has nothing to do with the First Amendment. Look, anytime the government has anything to do with telling us what we can hear, read, write, listen to, that implicates the First Amendment. Yeah. Uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz joining us. You mentioned Lawrence Tribe. There, there are a lot of folks who used to be friends. I don't know what your social status is these days, but uh, they're lining up and seemingly taking this idea to heart that says, well, you know, they were silencing conservatives. So what do we care? No, it's worse than that. Uh, they're now actively opposing the First Amendment. They're saying the First Amendment is patriarchal. It's white supremacist. It's elitist. We don't need a First Amendment. For the first time in my 60-year experience uh, as a First Amendment advocate, probably even more than that, I'm now 84 years old. I've been doing it since I was a kid. For the first time in my life, we're seeing academic support for abolishing the First Amendment. We don't need it. It's not necessary. Um, The marketplace of ideas is good enough. There shouldn't be minority rights. Uh, Certain things shouldn't be heard. Hate speech shouldn't be heard. Uh, Criticism of the left shouldn't be heard. Um, And and we're hearing for the first time an attack, a frontal attack on freedom of speech, as well as on due process. You know, if you think you have the truth on your side, capital T, capital T, Mm -hmm. what do you need dissenting opinions for? What do you need due process? We know that if you're accused, you must be guilty. We know that if somebody says something negative about you, it must be true. Why give anybody an opportunity to respond in the marketplace of ideas or in the court of law? That's the road to totalitarianism. When I was a kid, it came from the right during McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm an old man, (laughs) it's coming from the left. Um, Woke, uh, progressive, um, anti-freedom attitudes that we're hearing from some of my own colleagues. Professor Alan Dershowitz joining us. You know, Professor, I, I, I've i mentioned to you before, my, my oldest boy is at Stanford. He's a junior there. I know you've got a granddaughter, uh, medical school at Stanford. Uh, he, unfortunately, as brilliant as he is, and look, he, he, he would tell you how brilliant he was when he marched off to Stanford, and every semester he's there, he's convinced he's even more brilliant, but he is totally buying into exactly what you just said because... The professors, the academy, telling him, no, 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 we don't need any of this. I'm terrified by this. Well, that's why the hard left today is far more dangerous than the McCarthyism ever was. When I was growing up, I thought nothing could be worse than McCarthyism. But McCarthyism was the past that had no influence on university campuses to speak of. 
But today's sensorial lack of due process is permeating the academy. And so your son, who's today a, a junior at Stanford 10 years from now, will be a member of Congress or in the editorial board of The New York Times or uh, a Goldman Sachs partner uh, will, will be a, a ruler of the world and making important decisions. And if they're being propagandized today at Stanford and Berkeley, and Berkeley, for example, you can't speak at 14 clubs unless you announce publicly you're an anti-Zionist and against Israel's right to exist. As the nation state to the Jewish people, you can't even speak on Berkeley campus in 14 clubs. Uh, it's happening at Princeton. It's happening at Yale. Yale Law School, where I went uh, 60 years ago, uh, shouts down members of the Federalist Society who have a different point of view about uh, certain rights. And, and uh, we're seeing it at Harvard as well. And so uh, it's the future leaders of America who are being propagandized. That's why it's so dangerous, and that's why your show and others like it, presenting an opposing point of view, presenting both sides of issues. Look, you and I and Glenn Beck and I, we, we tend not to agree on very many things uh, politically. I'm a right. liberal Democrat, always right. votes uh, on the left, but yeah. I'm a civil libertarian first, and I believe in the Constitution before I believe in partisanship. I, I am right there with you, and my fear, and you, you, you absolutely uh pointed it out is that my son and others in his generation will be leaders in another 10 years, 20 years, uh, never, never, ever having heard uh, a dissenting opinion, believing that every dissenting opinion is is not just wrong, which I always listen. I always chalk that up to immaturity, right? Image. Ah, you're just wrong. And that's the end of the argument. But there is now this idea that uh, those who do not agree with woke are not just wrong. They're evil. And of course, as good upstanding woke folk, they have to eradicate evil. Well, no, that's true. Look, I went to Chilmark, Massachusetts for 53 years. I went there to defend Ted Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. Um, from there, I defended Bill Clinton uh, against his impeachment. And now the general group in Chilmark that I was a part of uh, won't talk to me or my wife. Um, uh, uh, Caroline Kennedy was seated next to me at a dinner party, and she said if she knew I had been invited, she wouldn't have come. Uh, this is the ambassador to Australia who's supposed to be talking to China can't abide talking to me because I defended President Trump or an old law school friend who said to me he always invited me to his event uh, every summer. But if he did this summer, it would be, quote, social suicide to be seen with me. Another said, I'll have dinner with you quietly if you promise you won't tell anybody. But, you know, there has been a whole uh, mechanism. Another one invited me to his daughter's. Um, engagement party and then disinvited me saying my wife could come, but I couldn't because too many people would walk out if they saw me simply as a result of the fact that I took a different view of the Constitution that they did. And ironically, of course, I was right and they were wrong. The Constitution does not permit impeachment or abuse of power or uh, uh, or contempt of Congress. It only permits impeachment for treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. They would have taken the same position had Hillary Clinton been impeached, had she been elected, or right. if Joe Biden gets impeached. It's right. just hypocrisy at its worst. And the students are learning hypocrisy. They're learning that it's okay to be a hypocrite and to apply a double standard as long as you come out the right way on woke issues. 
Professor, I know it's not Chillmark and it's none of your really cool friends, and I've never been the ambassador to anything except the the second bedroom, but um, anytime you're in Central Virginia, you have a standing offer to come and eat with us publicly where everybody can see that we are uh, um, chatting amicably. I appreciate that, and I may take you up on it. I love Virginia. It's uh, one of the great states, and of course, a state that one can't imagine American constitutional law without Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and and Madison uh, all coming from the great state of Virginia. So anybody who loves the Constitution has to love Virginia. Well, we love you, Professor, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best. I thank you again for making some time for us and uh, look forward to doing it again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you. That is Professor Alan Dershowitz. It is Jeff Katz. Happy to be sitting in for Glenn. This is the Glenn Beck Program. It is the Glenn Beck Program. Jeff Katz. Happy to be sitting in for Glenn. Yes, I'll spell it. K-A-T-Z. Happy to spell it, actually. K-A-T-Z. Don't ask me to spell Dershowitz. Uh, It's just Dersh. Professor Alan Dershowitz, did you ever think that you would feel as warm and fuzzy as you do about Professor Alan Dershowitz? I'm not making anything up when I tell you when I was 12 years old, I hated him, hated him with a passion because there he was in Skokie, Illinois, defending Nazis, defending them. Now, as a 12 year old living in Oxford Circle, section of Philadelphia, It's a mostly Jewish neighborhood. And in our community, we had a number of survivors of the Shoah, the Holocaust. They had numbers tattooed on their arms. I can remember as a little kid, growing up on my street, next to us, we had a a husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. Barg. That was their name. To this day, I don't know what the first name was because I just wasn't raised to address elders by their first name, even when they invited me to. So I only knew them as Mr. and Mrs. Barg. And they were older even at that time. And I remember that my brother and I, amongst other things, had to help our neighbors. They were our neighbors, after all. That's what you did. So, it snows in Philadelphia. We would go out, and we would shovel our steps And then we would shovel Mr. and Mrs. Barg's steps. And then we would shovel a little path between uh, their, I call it a patio, but it's kind of an insult to patios. It was like six feet of cement. But we would shovel, shovel a path because Ed, who was the mailman, and we did know Ed, and I never knew his last name. But Ed was our local mailman, and he would have to walk down the street delivering the mail. So so he always shoveled a path so he could get from Mr. and Mrs. Barg's house to our house. And then we would shovel a little path for the house that was right next to us. I mean, next to us. That was attached on each side. It was a row house. And those were the Walshes. And we knew everybody on the street. But I can remember as a little kid looking at Mr. Barg and seeing the numbers on his arm. And I, I asked him, what are, what are those numbers? 
And he hesitated for just a moment. He said, oh, oh, well, Jeffrey, those are that's our telephone number. I, I'm very forgetful. So I, I wrote our telephone number on our arm. And I said, oh, okay. Now, of course, it wasn't his telephone number. But Mr. and Mrs. Barkley, so many people in our neighborhood had survived the Holocaust. And there were there were a handful of creeps in the neighborhood, just outside the neighborhood, actually, who decided they would attack older people in our neighborhood who were Holocaust survivors. Because the way this worked, some people had cars, some people didn't. Mr. and Mrs. Barg did not have a car, and Mrs. Barg would walk from her house with a little shopping cart down to Castor Avenue, which was the shopping street, and she would buy groceries, and then she would walk back. Well, these creeps came into the neighborhood, and they looked for people like her. And they had all sorts of awful, ugly, horrible things to say. Hitler didn't get enough of you guys. Hitler should have finished the job. You don't deserve awful things. And then they they attacked these older folks who were Holocaust survivors. And so there were a bunch of us that got together. And it was the JDL, the Jewish Defense League is what it was called. It was organized and every, I think it was Tuesday evening, a bunch of us would be in the in the basement of the local synagogue learning how to fight. And there were some of us of a certain age, 12, 13, 14 years old, we would, as our duty, walk with folks like Mrs. Barg to the grocery store and back so that these thugs did not get to attack her. And as that was happening, these despicable bottom feeders in Skokie, Illinois, decided they would put on their Nazi costumes and march through Skokie, a town filled with Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. And there was this guy, this Dershowitz character, a Jew defending them, and I hated him. And as I got older, I realized Professor Dershowitz wasn't defending the Nazis. He hated them as much as we did. He despised them as much as we did. And as he just told us moments ago, Jeff, I would have been on your bus protesting. He was defending their right to speak freely because unless we defend ugly speech and protect speech with which we disagree, then what the heck is the point? You and I have to stand tall. You can read all of this on... The Jeff Katz Show on Facebook, Jeff Katz Show on Twitter. It is Jeff Katz sitting in for Glenn. This is the Glenn Beck Program. The Glenn Beck Program. It is the Glenn Beck Program. Jeff Katz, happy to be sitting in for Glenn. There is a renewed call for people to, quote, mask up. To put face masks back on because, well, we've, we've got this. It's not just the pandemic, Jeff. The pandemic, I thought the pandemic was over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the pandemic is over, but COVID theater continues, apparently. A new episode of... Uh, the COVID show un- underway. 
We uh, we, we have a uh, it's not a pandemic, Jeff. It's a it's triple demic. We, we, we've got covid. We've got the flu. We've got the cold. We got some other stuff, too. And you wouldn't understand it because you're not smart enough. Just listen to us. Put, put, put your dog on mask on. No. No, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I, I'm done with all of the subservient behavior that has been forced upon us. I really am. I'm done. Now, you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask. The two times that I will wear a mask, day number one, Halloween. Day number two, if I am ever pressed into emergency surgery somewhere because every actual real surgeon on the planet has vanished. Other than that, I'm good. Thank you very much. I am not going to engage in behavior that teaches our children to be weak, that demands they be dependent, because that's what this is part of. And we can argue about whether it, it helps or it doesn't help. In fact, do you remember uh, Dr. Fauci, that despicable, demonic little garden gnome that we saw for years, highest paid government official? He started out when all of the COVID was underway. And in fact, back then, we didn't call it COVID, right? It was the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Because that's what we've always done, right? Lyme disease, Spanish flu. It's always been connected to where it originated. And it was never... It's not a knock on anybody. It's it's just a it's a geographic descriptor. We've always used that. But now that we're living in this this political age where organizations like who World Health Organization are fundamentally wholly owned subsidiaries of the Chinese Communist government. Well, the Chinese Communist government calls up and says, hey, uh, you got to cut it out with this uh, Chinese virus stuff because it's looking bad for us. Come up with something else. Uh, And they did. But way back when it really did begin, and it really was located almost exclusively at the beginning in Wuhan, China, we saw images of some of the people in Wuhan wearing masks. And Dr. Fauci was on record as saying, well, you know, masks are not going to protect you. That's not going to do anything for you. And then he changed his tune. And then demanded everybody should wear a mask. Well, this continues. Even as you and I are now being told, well, you got to mask up again because we got the triple demic, man. And, and if you're not wearing a mask, you're one of those bad people. You're an evil person. You just want people to die. You're a terrible, terrible human being. Take a listen to President Biden's COVID advisor. There's no study in the world that shows that masks work that well. So you're never going to get the kind of benefit from mandatory year-round masking as you would from making substantial improvements in indoor air quality. But it's a lot easier to implement as well. A lot easier to implement. There's no benefit, but it's a lot easier to implement. And then we know who's on our side and who's on the wrong side, because that's how they see these things. They don't see it as, well, your opinion and my opinion. They see it as you're wrong because you don't agree with me. So if they are in a position to mandate year-round mask wearing, they can see immediately who's following the rules. You're not wearing a mask, but you're a bad person. 
You're going to have to be vilified. You're not going to be allowed to do things. You won't be allowed to transact business. You won't be allowed to support your family. I mean, you might work in one of those non-essential trades. Remember that? Non-essential. What does that mean? Can you honestly tell a parent, a mother or a father, whatever job they're working at, you pick a job you don't like. Pick a job you do like. I don't care. But pick a job. Now imagine for a second you are a mother or a father and you work at that job. You may work at that job because part of you loves the job. You may find yourself working there even though you hate the job. But why are you really working? You're working to take care of your children. That's essential any way you slice it. The idea the government bureaucrats who didn't miss a single paycheck, they were not short a nickel. They didn't have to participate in PPP or ABC or XYZ or MOUSE or whatever these other programs were because their checks kept coming. There was no voluntary pay cut forced upon government workers. Take a look in that dreaded private sector, though. There were all sorts of companies. Laid people off, fired people outright, said to the people that were left, uh, you're going to have to, well, you don't have to, but we'd really like it if you took a pay cut. It's, it's purely voluntary, but, uh, you know, if you don't do it, well, you got to get all your stuff out of your desk. Doesn't sound that voluntary, but okay. Now tell all of those people, tell those people who made sacrifices like that, You go ahead and tell them that their work is not essential. It's essential to their children. It's essential to their sons and daughters being able to eat every day and live indoors and have clothing that fits. They're essential. The government bureaucrats, were they essential? I don't know. And I'm not talking about frontline personnel. I'm not talking about police officers, firefighters, EMTs. They are essential. We all know that. We all agree on that, don't we? No, I'm I'm talking about bureaucrats. I'm talking about paper pushers who never, ever lost a nickel. Why? Because it's your money. They haven't run out of your money yet or my money yet. And even if they find that they're getting close to running out, they'll just fire up the printing press and print more money. It's all fiat money, by the way. They never lost a nickel. They were never faced with the prospect of taking a voluntary pay cut or losing their job. In fact, some of these people actually wound up uh, getting bonuses. Am I really supposed to look to them and say, oh, I trust you? Because I don't. It's the same battle I I fought with my oldest boy. He came back from Stanford. See, worked it in again. But he came back from Stanford as COVID is hitting. And in fact, I don't think it was even called COVID at the time. I think it was still uh, the the, the Wuhan flu or the Chinese virus, whatever. I, I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't COVID, right? But I remember he called and said, hey, listen, uh, they're going to close down the campus for two weeks. So I got to come home. Can you get me an airplane ticket? And so being the 
the loving dad that I am, I got online, I got him an airplane ticket, and he came back for two weeks, wound up staying for 18 months, but he came back for two weeks. And during the 18 months, as apparently the entire world was just disintegrating before our very eyes, he was in many ways terrified. And he didn't say, oh my gosh, I'm terrified, but I could see what he was going through. I could listen to him, I, the conversations we had. He believed with to his very core that this was it. It was it was all coming to an end and how unfair that was. And my gosh, you know, I just got to Stanford and it's just not right. I, on the other hand, thought, oh, here we go again. And he was angry with me. I mean, really, really angry. He was torqued. Why? Because I wasn't taking it as seriously as he was. Now, why was that? Because I loved illness and sickness and germs? Not even close. I think I mentioned to you yesterday, right? I've always been the guy with two huge bottles of Purell on my desk. I, I don't like germs. Not a germaphobe, but I don't like them. But I had been through this stuff before. I survived Ebola and bird flu and swine flu and all of the other end-of-the-world situations that we had seen. And it was at that time that I finally fully appreciated why certain people of a certain age always begin by telling you how old they are. When I was younger and people would do that, you know, Jeff, I'm 72. I think, oh, okay, whatever. Who cares? Why do you have to tell me how old you are? And people of a certain age almost always begin the conversation by telling you how old they are. And I used to find that so flippant annoying. My God, why are you doing that? And then I realized it. Oh, I get it. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've done a lot. You're not going to be suckered. You're not going to be subjugated because you already have lived through this sort of nonsense. I get it now. And so I find myself saying things like, well, in my five decades, because I just want people to have a little glimpse into this. And that's what I told my oldest boy. I said, dude, I've, I've lived through all of these other end of the world scenarios and I'm still here. And you may not like what I have to say. Heck, you may not even like me sometimes. Oh, it's not true. Well, whatever. But I'm just telling you, I am not, not going to be under anybody's thumb for this or any other reason. Just not going to happen. Social media, my friends, I would love to have you uh, step up and be part of this. Over on Facebook, please look for The Jeff Cat Show. I know there's no like button. I don't know why, but there is a follow option. So if would you mind give me a follow over on Facebook, The Jeff Katz Show. And then over on Twitter, if you would follow me there, I'd love it. I've got all this uh, stuff we're talking about today. It's all posted there as well. Jeff Katz Show on Twitter. And yes, it's K-A-T-Z. Jeff Katz, normally heard on News Radio WRVA in Central Virginia. It is Jeff Katz in for Glenn. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Stay informed. Sign up for the free newsletter today at glennbeck.com.
Glenn Beck program. Jeff Katz. Happy to be sitting in for Glenn. Take a look. Take a look at the attempts to control speech. Professor Alan Dershowitz was here a little bit earlier. If you missed it, go to theblaze.com. You're always able to uh, listen to uh, podcasts. And if you're not looking at theblaze.com multiple times a day, you're doing yourself a disservice. Glenbeck.com, another wonderful resource. Every day in my email box, there's there's an update, there's a report, there's some suggested reading that comes from Glenn, and I, I find it very valuable. So glennbeck.com and theblaze.com are, are two must-visit websites for you. See what people in power are saying about speech. Take a look at what is being done. How many times can Glenn talk about the Great Reset before people start paying attention, say, oh my gosh, yeah, now I get it. Because it's really easy at first when you talk about the Great Reset, you're talking about any of these things. And people go, ah, you're just nuts. Yeah, it's a conspiracy theory. You're just part of a conspiracy theory. Well, I tell you right now, I'm not part of any conspiracy theory. And I think if we're all going to be involved in this conspiracy, we're going to need a lot more uh, tape to wrap around our heads. But this is not conspiratorial in nature. This is looking at, well, as an example, World Economic Forum in Davos. They say it right there. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it. You're not going to own anything. You're going to be happy about it. We'll take care of everything, and you just have to you know, shut your mouth. Take a look at college campuses. College campuses where college students are now being taught any dissent is just evil. We know what the truth is, and if you are not in line with these woke points, well, then clearly you are wrong, and because you are wrong, nobody has to listen to you. In fact, nobody should listen to you. It is about demonizing those of us who don't subscribe to their ideology. That's what is so evil about it. Something as simple as saying, well, we have boys and we have girls. Let's get on with the rest of our day. If you go over to the Jeff Katz Show page right now on Facebook, I have a video of a guy claiming that he is suffering from intense period cramps. You have to look at the video. You just have to look at the video and you will understand the nonsensical nature of so much that is being forced upon us right now. And you either agree with it or you will be silenced. You will be canceled. Check out Jeff Katz show over on Twitter. Give it a follow. Check out the Jeff Katz show over on Facebook. Give it a follow. It is Jeff Katz in for Glenn. This is the Glenn Beck Program. This is the Glenn Beck Program.